play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. And this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Ben Gibbard. Thinking about those kids. Thinking about those kids back in 99. Gas leaking in the creek. Ben is the lead singer and guitar player in Death Cab for Cutie. He was half of the Postal Service, and he did this side project called All-Time Quarterback that I used to listen to in the early aughts. Ben is also an ultra-marathon runner, which means the races are 50 miles or more. Hard to get your mind around. He and his fellow long-distance runners are very focused on getting enough calories. My friend was running this 100-miler, and he just hears, kind of coming down the trail, like you just hear somebody yelling, Butter! Butter! I'm like, butter? What the hell? And like, the guy comes in, and then his crew just gives him two sticks of butter, and he just eats them both, and then just goes off down the trail. It's like, wow, that sounds horrible. But I can totally see a moment where you would just be like, butter sounds incredible. Just I actually butter. like to eat butter plain, which most people are completely disgusted by. No, butter is amazing. It's so good. We'll talk more about long distance running and the cravings that come with it later in the show. And there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who love brunch and those who love to hate it. I mean, at this point, I think it's just considered irredeemably basic. I chat with writer Sadie Stein about America's love-hate relationship with brunch, inspired by a piece she wrote for The New Yorker, and learn the history of the burrito with award-winning writer and journalist Gustavo Ariano, author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. But first, my chat with Ben Gibbard. I understand that you have beef with brunch. Yeah, I, I've, I, I really dislike brunch as a concept. You're about to get mobbed. People are going to be coming at you with not with pitchforks, but like regular forks. Right. Because well, America be, loves brunch. Yeah. You know, both Rachel, my wife, and I have this collective rant. Let's say that you and I were beginning a friendship. We had met and we were like kind of starting to hit it off. And we were thinking like, man, maybe we'll hang out outside of this context of this podcast. And what you suggested that we do was why don't we go to Skillet on a Saturday afternoon, basically, and let's, having not eaten anything really that day, and let's stand out in front for up to 90 minutes with a cup of coffee waiting for those four (laughs) to stop camping out on that table (laughs) with their mimosas. That would be the end of our potential friendship. That would be... Just the mere suggestion. The mere suggestion of it would be like, these are not my people. This this is not my person here. Because yeah. it's amazing to me that people are willing to stand outside in mass watching other people eat so that they can eat eggs and bacon, which are two things that can easily be made at home. What about going out to breakfast using a different name at a place where there is no lines? Or do you just not like to have the morning or afternoon meal at a restaurant? Breakfast is always eaten at home. Like the, the idea of going out to breakfast with people is just not appealing to me because breakfast for me is like seven in the morning. Ooh. 
I mean, like I get up, I, I get up and I have coffee and I eat. The idea yeah. of eating breakfast at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. is just a non-starter for me. But what Rachel and I often do on weekends is, I don't know if anybody listening to this podcast knows this, but there are a ton of restaurants in Seattle that are virtually empty at 11.30 or noon that serve foods other than breakfast and brunch. So we'll just go and find the Thai place or like a Vietnamese place or... Like Mom Noon is one of my favorite places. We'll go oh, there. I love Mom Noon. Incredible. Yeah, it's you know it's always they're always, it's always there's always people in there, but it's not packed out with a brunch crowd. So I would much rather go and get an early lunch that is some kind of ethnic or non breakfasty food at a time that's around lunch because as an old person, I eat lunch at like eleven thirty <laughs> or noon. Um, you have to get to bed by six. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, oh yeah, in bed by nine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it is getting older, though, because in my 20s, when I partied a ton, that was what you did because then you would get together the next morning with the same people you went out with. Yeah, and sure. that was like the recap the night. Yeah, you would recap, yeah, recap and you were hungover and you would all kind of bond over that and you were just gross and you wouldn't take a shower. Yeah. And I would eat, you know, biscuits and gravy and all of these things that made me feel terrible, but I didn't care because I would just go back to sleep. Now right. I want to have a day and I don't want to feel bad all day. And so I don't want to eat biscuits and gravy anymore at all because it just makes me so tired and I don't want to have a tired day. And the same, like I don't drink that much anymore, so I don't need to have the recap. And I think it's kind of, in a way, a little sad for me. I realized (laughs) that this weekend I was thinking, I'm like, that was such a ritual that I loved that I don't really do anymore. I don't think it's sad as much as it is like you just shift your day accordingly based on what your social patterns are. Yeah. For Rachel and myself, we would so rather have eight people over for a dinner party at our house than to be like out at a bar till one in the morning. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the portmanteau brunch was coined in Britain in 1895. And if you're thinking it was a refined affair with pinkies up and tiers of tiny sandwiches, and that it was us, the crass Americans who ruined it by chugging down bottomless mimosas and horking down stuffed French toast, you, sir or madam, would be wrong. An 1895 article in Hunter's Weekly titled Brunch, a Plea, described brunch as a late morning Sunday meal for, quote, Saturday night carousers. So brunch was for hungover people from the very beginning. The author of that article was a Brit named Guy Berenger. Berenger wrote, By eliminating the need to get up on Sunday, brunch would make life brighter for Saturday night carousers. Brunch is cheerful, sociable, and enticing. It is talk compelling. It puts you in a good temper. It makes you satisfied with yourself and your fellow beings. It sweeps away the worries and cobwebs of the week. So that was back in 1895, but restaurants in the U.S. didn't start serving brunch until around the 1930s. And back then, it was mostly in hotels. Not until the 1980s and 90s did middle-class, regular Americans start to embrace the late morning meal. I have always loved brunch. Just like Behringer said, brunch is cheerful, sociable, enticing. Uh, It wasn't until I thought about it, though that I realized that unlike dinner, I don't have high expectations about what the food is supposed to be. When I go out at night, I want it to be really good. But when you go out for brunch, you already know what's going to be on the menu for the most part. It's going to be some combination of eggs, potatoes, toast, and bacon, kind of like at Taco Bell. There's like six ingredients mushed up and folded up in different ways. Just pour some hot sauce all over the top, and that is brunch. There's something about the conversation, I think, that's different at brunch than at dinner. I feel like the mood is light, and there's the whole day ahead. It's like it's like a hopeful meal. I'm like Behringer now. So I was somewhat surprised that there are a bunch of brunch haters out there. I called up writer Sadie Stein, who wrote a piece for The New Yorker called 
Are we done hating brunch? Sadie lives on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. Which is one of the brunch capitals, certainly, of America. The Upper West Side, if you don't offer your cheap Benedict and bottomless mimosa on a Sunday, I mean, you might as well close up shop right now. If anyone ever again asks you, where do you live? You have to say, I live in the Upper West Side, the the brunch brunch capital of the world. (laughs) Shrinks and brunch, that's what we've got up here. Not a brunch hater herself, Sadie says there are many reasons to dislike brunch. The long lines at trendy restaurants in cities like Portland, L.A., and New York City. The unoriginal food. But some of the hate might be a little bit sexist. I feel like it used to be, and maybe this is kind of a sex in the city thing, which I think is part of the stigma, by the way. Is I think people thought of it as a really a girl's thing. If you read Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential, back in the day, you'll remember the deep disdain that he had for brunch. Yeah, I think he really dealt it a blow that it took a long time to come back from because he talked about, first of all, how much chefs absolutely hate doing brunch service because people are jerks and hungover and the food is so unrewarding and and brainless, but also that they did all these repulsive tricks like um, strain out the leftover butter pats from the table, strain out the crumbs to make the hollandaise and how hollandaise is this repulsive breeding ground for bacteria. And he said that the margins are so inflated on things like potatoes and bread and eggs that having read it, you really felt like a fool and kind of a sucker if you then went and did it after reading Bourdain, especially knowing the chefs despised you. It was a real disincentive. (laughs) That's I just have to lie to myself, though. You know, I know that they use factory farmed meat at taco trucks, and I'm just going to keep on going. And maybe now mm-hmm. I know that they use butter that someone else licked, but I'm going to still keep on brunching. <laughs> if you know too much, you can't really eat out at all. What is Ben Gibbard's last meal? Well, we know that it is not brunch, but it is something so specifically special to me that I audibly gasped when he did his big reveal. Stick around. We'll be right back. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. 
like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. What would your last meal be, Ben? One of the reasons that I, I was excited to do this podcast was like my, I've known this answer for over 20 years. And uh, my last meal would be a super veggie burrito from Taqueria Cancun <gasps> in San Francisco, but the one on 19th and Mission. Yes. Not the one, not the one on Market. No. The, the, not the stabby one down on, well, they're all a little stabby. The one down on Market is really sketchy. Yours, which is my favorite place to get a burrito. Is it really? In San Francisco, which is why I clutched my chest and got so (laughs) excited. That's the one when you get out of the BART, you breathe in, you go, "Mm, urine. Yep, totally. And then you just walk on through it, the cloud of urine, and you go get your burrito. And the super veggie burrito is my favorite, too. And I'm not even a vegetarian. Yeah, it's it's great. And- but the part of the meal that is the real kicker for me is the green sauce. The guy gives you like a little bag of slightly stale tortilla chips. That's and then, the one thing there that isn't that good. No, but with the green sauce, it's fine because then there's a there's a little red salsa and there's a little green sauce. It's kind of a it's like an avocado tomatillo slurry kind yeah. of thing. And I'm always asking for five of those things, and the guy always looks kind of like, oh, sure, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, I can see they've got like a ten gallon jar of it they're, they're not, not running wanting they're not for wanting salsa. for it yeah. yeah i wanted to bring a mason jar and just say i will give you 50 dollars to fill this up i was taken there it was in december 98 we were on tour of this band who were from san francisco called crumb and it was on our first record and mark weinberg who was the guitar player took me and nick from death cab there and he's like yeah this is the place and i was vegan at that time and they would do veggie burrito with no cheese or sour cream and then the and you you don't ask any questions. You don't no. ask like what what else in the, what's in the rice, just whatever. And immediately this be, this became this thing that like I just you know I'd had burritos before obviously, but this was the first time I'd had a proper mission burrito. At this period, obviously the internet existed, but it certainly wasn't the spoil everything catch all spoiler that it is now, where nothing remains a secret for longer than a half second. Yeah. Right. So at the time, and I'm sure there were probably travel websites in the world and they probably mentioned this place but you know people weren't carrying around smartphones that told them where to get the best burrito in town or well, this there is the home 700 listicles it wasn't you know yeah. buzzfeed saying 20 best burritos you know everybody yeah. has those lists now you're right that makes me so happy because 2002 i think is when i discovered it um i'm from the bay area but i went to school in chico and then when we'd come down to the city that was the spot we would go and years ago when i first became obsessed with last meals mm-hmm a long time ago before I had this podcast, and that was always my last meal, too. Was it? it, Yeah. But that burrito is like celebrity status to me. I get nervous taking people there because I'm afraid if they don't like it that, I don't know, it's like my favorite band that I don't really like to tell people to listen to because if they don't like it, it will hurt my feelings. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's very personal, that burrito. Yeah, totally. And I I feel like we had gone back through San Francisco, I think, in early 99, and I I was in there getting a burrito, and somebody that I knew saw me in there with the burrito and 
very, very accusatory. It was like, who told you about this place? <laughs> Why are you here? And once I told him that Mark had sent me there, he was like, okay, okay, okay cool. Okay, but, cool. but he kind of insinuated, like, don't tell anybody about this, which was the style of the time, right? You kind of, you know, in the 90s, you kind of had a secret. You knew about a secret place or a secret thing, and you didn't want other people to know about yeah. it. You didn't, you didn't immediately blast it out to the world. Like, hey, I'm at Taqueria Cancun. This is the best burrito ever to your thousands of followers yeah. or whatever. I'm sure you have also been privy to the Cancun versus Farolito mm-hmm. argument. It's like the Pats versus Geno's. Yes. They're made mere blocks from each other. And it really just comes down to like, which one did you have first? Exactly. I've never, there's, I've never known somebody who's like, I used to go to Cancun, but now I go to Farolito. Never. No. It's pure nostalgia. Yeah. Walk me through what you love about it and the components of it and the things that make that burrito special. Okay. Um, well, I've already mentioned the green sauce. That is used for dipping chips into. And then also, as I take bites of the burrito, the green sauce goes into the burrito. And I like to get it to a point where my mouth is just on fire, where it's like I'm almost not tasting it anymore. But, you know, it is, of course, a flour tortilla. There is, you know, a good helping of rice in there. There are beans, pinto or black. You have your choice. And then there's avocado. And then if you choose sour cream and cheese in there as well. But And then that is like put on the grill and like warmed up. There is something about what happens to avocados when they're heated, slightly heated. I can't think of a dish where you would, quote unquote, cook the avocados. You would heat them up, you know? Yeah. But there's a particular kind of like butteriness that avocados have in general because of all the fat. But then when you heat them up, flavor kind of seeps into everything else just just slightly. So when you take that first bite and you get that like melt melty avocado. And they don't use guacamole, which is one of the things we always loved, is yeah. it is slices of avocado, slices, which yeah. is very rare in a burrito. I think the thing that makes a perfect burrito is the distribution. Well, that's one of the things. Because, like, yeah. you know, you don't want to take the bite and you get all the sour cream in one bite. I like mine to be really mushy yeah, inside. Totally. I want everything to be married. Yeah, and then I'll do uh, Mexican Coke in a bottle. Oh, yeah. That's the meal. The meal is the chips and the green sauce as much as I want. Like, I'm on death row, right? I was framed for a crime I did commit. That's, what that's was why it? I'm there. What were you framed for? Let's just say, like, triple homicide. Ooh, yeah, yeah. go big. Yeah, so triple homicide. I, you know, I was like, I was framed. You know, so it's as much green sauce as I want. Bring me a mason jar of it. I'll break vegan today. I'm going to have the, do the full flavor. Yeah. And then I'm going to have the Mexican Coke, like the, the medio litro, like the bigger one. Not, Ooh. Not, not the small one, the big one. The state's um, going to pay. Exactly. They're going to pay $15. <laughs> For his last meal, Ben Gibbard wants a veggie burrito from the 19th and Mission location of Taqueria Cancun in the Mission District of San Francisco, California, United States of America, Earth. That burrito is stuffed with rice, beans, cheese, onions, cilantro, salsa, sour cream, and very important, slices of avocado. And to wash it all down, he wants a Mexican Coke in a bottle. Now, a lot of people prefer the Mexi Coke because it's made with cane sugar and doesn't have that high fructose corn syrup flavor. Now, chances are, if you're a human living in this country, you have had a burrito. But mission-style burritos are their own thing. It's different than a burrito you might get in San Diego or Arizona or Texas. Here to tell us what makes a mission-style burrito a mission-style burrito is Gustavo Ariano, writer for the LA Times and author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. So the mission burrito, first and foremost, has to be humongous, like huge, 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 as big as you could possibly get that's uh, you know, readily available in the United States. 
And you also it also has to be prepared like an assembly line. So they don't just make them for you in the back. They you have to see it in front of you because you basically make it to order. So you put in your rice. It could be white rice or you know Spanish rice. It could be black beans or pinto beans. You put your salsa. You put your choice of meat. You put guacamole. You put sour cream. If you want to put cheese, that's fine. And the most important thing, you keep going down this assembly line. They wrap it up. They put it in foil. They might grill it on a press just for a little bit, and voila, there it is for you. You eat it. You keep it inside the foil because it just might explode. You unwrap the foil. Take it off like petals from a rose, slowly but surely. That is beautiful. I just cried a little tapatio tear (laughs) hearing that poetry. When I see someone out in public unwrapping their burrito before they eat it, I want to murder them. I want to jump over tables and just like, no, and take it away from them. Like I'm, you know, from Child Protective Services, like from BPS, Burrito Protective Services. Never, ever. This is my public service announcement. Under any circumstances, do you release the burrito from the foil? It is there for a reason. Don't take the baby burrito out of its blankie. The foil is there to preserve the burrito's integrity to keep it nice and tight so it doesn't leak. But also, I believe that a tightly wrapped burrito tastes better. Like if you've ever had a burrito that's falling apart, which is the worst. It happened to me yesterday, actually. It just doesn't taste as good. Like everything's falling out, so you're distracted. But also there's something about that texture when everything is smushed together that you just get a nice, rich, dense bite instead of rice falling willy-nilly all over your lap. The very first Mission-style burrito was at a place called El Faro. It's still in the Mission District. It was invented by an immigrant from Mexico named Febronio Ontiveros. He was from the state of Durango in northern Mexico, so he was familiar with burritos. So by the time he opens up this restaurant in the Mission District in the early 1960s, he's selling burritos. One day, a bunch of firefighters come in. They said they were hungry and that uh, those small burritos that he sold wouldn't do. So he said, come back the following day. I'll, I'll make a bigger burrito for you guys. So at first, he combined two flour tortillas then just spread ingredients across the two flour tortillas and then folded them. And these firefighters supposedly liked it so much and made enough business for him that he decided to go to a tortilla-making factory and ask them to make bigger tortillas. Huge flour tortillas are actually a staple of uh, northern Mexico, Sonora, but in those days, they just weren't made. They were small. El Faro, which is still there, it's still alive. Thankfully, gentrification hasn't taken away just yet. According to the website 538.com, Ben's favorite spot, Taqueria Cancun, opened in 1993. Remember when Ben was talking about Taqueria Cancun and El Farolito being rivals, that people are super loyal to only one of these taquerias? Well, it turns out that the owners of Cancun worked at Farolito when they first came to the United States. One of the owners, Gerardo Rico, told 538 that the owners of El Farolito encouraged him to go out and open his own place, and those guys remain friends to this day. Rico told 538 that most of Taqueria Cancun's recipes are a blend of El Farolito and the food he ate growing up. And if you've never been to Taqueria Cancun, it's a festive little restaurant with traditional, colorful paper cutout banners hanging from the ceiling. There are yellow painted walls, fake painted brick, tropical murals. There's a lot going on. But once you're inside, it no longer smells like urine. So that is the history of Taqueria Cancun. But what about the history of the burrito? Where did the burrito come from? The burrito comes from northern Mexico, or more, more specifically the borderlands. Arizona, Mexico, uh, Sonora, Chihuahua, Texas. So it was, it was invented somewhere along that line because that's where flour tortillas are indigenous. Historically, they exist nowhere else in Mexico except there. That's why in the United States, flour tortillas have always sold 
far more than corn tortillas. So what do you imagine the first burritos were like as far as the size and what was in them? Well, what was in them, of course, is meat. Because in northern Mexico also, that's one of the big beef-producing regions of Mexico. And Carne de Machaca, Chile Colorado, maybe if you go out to, you know, Nuevo León, Arachada, well, you know, fajitas, for lack of a better term. So it was definitely beef. It maybe some fillings of rice and beans. But most importantly, these burritos were small. In fact, the first burritos to come into the United States, going back to the 1930s through the 50s, they were all small little burritos. And so when did they first make their way into the U.S.? And was it first in California or Texas? It's interesting because the first mass consumers of burritos were braceros. These were the Mexican immigrants who were contracted by farmers uh, through an agreement with, between the United States and Mexican governments who come into the United States and pick the crops during the four, from the 40s right up until the 60s. In my book, Talk of USA, I talk about how these, uh, the farmers, they were trying to be nice and they thought, oh, hey, Mexicans like beans and rice and tortillas. And if we wrap it into these burritos, they'll eat them. But the braceros hated it because a lot of them were not familiar with that food. It's like, get, you know, imagining you're someone from New England in the 1920s and all of a sudden you're dropped into Hawaii and you have to eat all that food. Even though it's technically American, you're like, what the hell is all this? Talk about how burritos moved nationwide from the West Coast and from the Southwest. Uh, the United States have, has been eating burritos now a good 60 years. You know, w once we started having these taco empires, like, you know, up in the Northwest, taco time, then you have Del Taco, you have Taco Bell, and, you know, they, they all sold burritos. But burritos really didn't explode until the 1990s, and it was because of Chipotle. You have a guy named Steve Bell who studies at the Culinary Institute of America in San Francisco. Late nights go gets his mission burrito, goes back home to Denver, wants to open up a fancy restaurant, but thinks to himself, I think I could make uh, some money to fund my restaurant by opening up a burrito stand, selling those mission-style burritos. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. So, you know, what eaters know as Chipotle, that's basically an approximation of taquerias in the Mission District. It, what they make you is a mission burrito. Okay, so if you're looking for hot burrito tips, which who isn't, go to my Instagram, Your Last Meal Podcast. I was in LA a few weeks ago. I did a little taco and burrito crawl, and there's a post about the best burrito that I've probably had in a decade. So Your Last Meal Podcast on Instagram. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, Ben talks about what he eats when he runs a 100-mile race. More than a decade ago, Ben Gibbard quit drinking and took up running, which slowly and eventually turned into long distance running, which eventually turned into him running 100 mile races. So obviously, Ben is a musician and writing songs is a very solitary indoor activity. But with running, he's outside, he's moving, and he feels connected to a community that doesn't just see him as a famous musician but as a fellow athlete who he can nerd out on running with. You transcend everything. And that's why I refer to it at times as a spiritual practice, because it feels as if you are just completely not leaving your body. It's not an out-of-body experience. It's the most in-body experience you can have. And you might stop for a while and eat something and like look out and you know hopefully see some kind of beautiful natural scene. And in those moments, you know, I am just overwhelmed with gratitude that my body is able has been able to take me to these places. And after I've completed you know, an event like that, I just have this sense of calm and peace, you know, for weeks afterwards that I've never really experienced before. 
When you're training for a marathon or a 100-mile event, you have to work hard at making sure you're getting enough calories. Your wife said that sometimes she hears you in the middle of the night opening up wrappers and eating basically in your sleep. Like you wake up, you eat, you go back to sleep again. So how much are you needing to consume when you're gearing up for one of these races? And then when you're running 100 miles, how are you eating and keeping enough calories in you to to do something that's so long? I don't know how long it takes you to do 100 miles. The fastest one I've done was in 23 hours and like 20 minutes or something like that. It's hard to stay awake that long. You'd be surprised, actually, because <laughs> if I challenge you to sit in that chair for 24 hours. Yeah, it'd be so boring. It would be boring. You would just be sitting stagnating. You'd fall asleep. But if you were doing this activity, physical activity that was had your heart rate up the whole time, and you had to remain focused in order to not die, you would find a way to stay awake. Yeah. That and caffeine. That. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so are you stopping at all to eat or to drink? Or oh, absolutely. Are you... yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's sure. not 23 hours straight running. No, I... it's not somebody in a singlet with nothing kind of running and grabbing things with water. Just like a diaper and a dream. Yeah, no, it's, just, it's not <laughs> that. It's, you know, I have, I'm wearing like a vest that has bottles in it that I have. Um, I use this product called Tailwind, which is... um like a liquid nutrition. So each bottle has about 200 calories. Your body can process between 250 and 300 calories an hour. Your stomach can. Mm -hmm. And as an ultra runner, it's important to not overload your stomach or otherwise it's going to come back up. And that's, and that's happened before. On a hundred miler, I usually start with a liquid nutrition and then when the sun goes down, then my body really starts craving solid solid foods. Because, and also because if I'm running a race in August, it's 80 degrees. And when it's really hot, you're asking your body to digest food, cool itself by sweating, and you're using all your muscles. Mm-hmm. And your body is going to divert its energy to cooling over digesting food. So I tend to not even want solid food until it starts getting dark. So mm-hmm. that could be like 10 or 11 hours of just drinking calories. And then you start getting really hungry. And that's when you start getting weird cravings. So yeah. like I, on this, <laughs> on this last race, I had asked for... It was a race in uh, Marin Headlands outside of San Francisco. So it was fair. You could get stuff. There was like a co-op. I'm texting her because I had service. I was like, avocado sushi. <laughs> and then I was like, Can you get fried rice. And then at some point I was like, Slurpee, <laughs> like Coca-Cola Slurpee. <laughs> and I was like, it was so hot and I wanted a Slurpee so badly. And I got to the aid station and I saw Rachel. I was like, you got a Slurpee? And she's like, I'm not getting you a Slurpee. I got you like all this other stuff. We got all the way here. And then I get a text. You want a Slurpee? I get you a Slurpee. She's like, I can't fulfill like, oh, every single demand that you're texting at me. Yeah, exactly. It was it like in cartoons where someone's really hungry and then their friend looks like a chicken leg. Oh my like, God. Yeah. You see your wife and you're like, Slurpee. Oh my it God. It looks like a giant icy. I wouldn't know, obviously, but I would imagine maybe the only equivalent would be like if a woman was pregnant and had this, like, I need this food so badly you don't understand. Like, you need to give it to me right now. That's the feeling I have where it's like, the only thing I want in life right now is a Slurpee. That's all I want. And you didn't get it for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but she had bought some pineapple. Give me all that pineapple. Like, it was the greatest thing I'd ever had in my life. Yeah. So, you know, and as you go through, you're on one of these races, you end up, you're kind of running through the woods and you come across an aid station, which is not like an aid station on like a marathon where there's a cup set up and maybe some gels. Like, you know, people are making like pierogies or grilled cheese Ooh. sandwiches. The lifeblood of all ultra runners is Coca-Cola, not Pepsi, Coca-Cola. And if you ever show up at an ultra and they don't have Coca-Cola, like, you know, that's like a canary in the coal mine. Like, you don't have Coke? Like, is this your first time doing this? Like, there's something about Coca-Cola that mm. every ultra runner just craves it. If you had Pepsi and not Coke on an ultra, people are like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> You're flipping tables. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That was 
Ben Gibbard's last meal. After three sold-out Death Cab for Cutie shows in Seattle, Ben is getting ready to take off on a solo tour. Check out the tour schedule and get tickets at deathcabforcutie.com. And the music that you've been hearing through this episode is off of Death Cab's latest album, The Blue EP. Thanks to writer Sadie Stein, who has the coolest name ever, and to writer and journalist Gustavo Ariano, author of Taco USA. And for the record, Gustavo also has a cool name, but it is just not alliterated. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, recorded with Aaron Mason, original theme music by Prom Queen. Follow along on Instagram, Your Last Meal Podcast. Subscribe, leave a review. You know what you're supposed to do. You just haven't done it yet. (laughs) I am here to shame you. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. (laughs) 